Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. I'm Chris North and what you're about to listen to was originally broadcast as part of Pythagoras' Trousers, a science and engineering show on Radio Cardiff. You can find a full show and listen to past episodes at pythagorastrousers.co.uk. But for now, here's this month's astronomy. This month we're celebrating a centenary of a marvellous theory. The General Theory of Relativity by Albert Einstein back in 1915. That's when it was originally published. And of course now is exactly the right time to talk about this because the anniversary itself was the 25th of November. And after a 100 years of this theory, are we any closer to understanding it? Uh, to find out about that, I'm joined by uh, two researchers here in Cardiff. So Professor Mark Hannam and Dr Patrick Sutton. So welcome to the programme both. Thanks Chris, good to be here. Thanks. So Mark, uh, let's start off with, with what general relativity is is all about. What, what is general relativity? General relativity is essentially Einstein's, uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, which replaces the theory of gravity from Newton, which had been uh, used for several hundred years uh, before that. So the main change, the, the most radical change that Einstein introduced was instead of having gravity as some mysterious force that, that just acts uh, over huge distances, like the Earth... Uh, being pulled by the sun by some mysterious force, some invisible string or something, uh, Einstein proposed that what was actually happening was space and time themselves were being curved, that distances were being stretched, that time was being uh, slowed down uh, in such a way that uh, the Earth going going through space was following what it thought was actually the straightest and the shortest path, uh, and that was leading it in, in a path around the sun. So it wasn't some force, it was just things moving where they... was easiest for them to move due to the curvature of space and time. And, and Patrick, we see this demonstrated sometimes with a, a sort of rubber sheet, a, an elastic sheet, and that, that's quite a good analogy for what's happening here. Right? Yes, it is. It's not a perfect analogy, but it, it does give a lot of insights, I think, into the basic idea. So you can imagine um, a rubber sheet, say a trampoline in, in your backyard, and uh, and we're like little ants crawling across the trampoline. And, and if there's nothing else in the space. The trampoline is completely flat and, and everything looks normal. Uh, but then suppose you have... Uh, a bowling ball that you put in the middle of the trampoline. That might represent the sun. It's going to distort the trampoline. It's going to bend it. And now if you're a little ant crawling around on the surface, you might move in what you think is a straight line as you crawl across the trampoline. Uh, but when sort of seen from, from outside, uh, the ant's path will seem to naturally curve around the, the bowling ball because the, the, the space he's moving through is being stretched or distorted, curved by the, by the mass of the bowling ball. So that is an analogy where you replace the bowling ball by the sun and the ant says is the earth. Um, gives you a, a sort of a hand-waving but useful uh, idea, I think, for trying to understand uh, the, the basic idea of the general relativity and, and how gravity is encoded then as a, as a warping of space. Yeah, I think that the, a lot of people find the, this idea of curved space and time very strange. Well, it is a very strange idea, but we do have an, ex, uh, an everyday experience of curvature, which is the, the curvature of the Earth. And so if you uh, take two people who start at the, the equator and they head directly north, then you'd expect they're actually going to they're going to travel on parallel paths and they'll never meet. But of course, they will actually meet. They'll meet at the North Pole, and that's because the Earth is not flat; it's it's curved. And so, although the curvature is really counterintuitive and 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 really is quite strange, and I think it would even be strange for these people going north from the, the equator that they meet. They don't expect to do that, but that that is nonetheless a, a an everyday uh, experience that we have of, of curved spaces. And there were lots of things that, that sort of fell out of, as a result of Einstein's theory that, that, that came by. And um, it, it 
made so, all sorts of predictions, not necessarily by Einstein, but but by other people using his theory to predict so many things in the universe, things like uh, black holes, for example. Einstein didn't directly predict black holes himself. As you say, these were things that came from, from other people. And really, when Einstein first proposed the theory, although the ideas of curved space and time and light bending around the sun and so on were really, really radical and people found them quite shocking and they made Einstein instantly famous, these were, in a way, quite small effects of, of general relativity. And it was only later that people realized that if you were uh, in the presence of an extremely strong gravitational field, so if you had uh, a very, very massive, very, very dense object, uh, then space and time could be distorted in such a way that you'd have a region where even light couldn't escape. And that's that's what a black hole is. And there, there are truly bizarre effects that happen where you, you have a uh, if, if someone falls into a black hole, then uh, if you, as you watch them fall in, their their wristwatch will will slow down and appear never to actually reach the time when they uh, when they fall in. Whereas from their their experience, they actually just fall straight in and they don't notice anything. And these sorts of weird effects are are only only manifest themselves close to in the presence of extremely strong gravitational fields. But the, and there are more local effects as well. You mentioned light bending around the sun. Um, there are more local effects with the orbits of the the planets. So Patrick, I mean, one of the big things that that led to the, the sort of the proof almost that that uh, Einstein's theory was probably correct was was the idea that um, that Mercury, its orbit around the sun, was not what was predicted. Yes, this was uh, this is a phenomenon known as the anomalous precession of the perihelion of Mercury. It's a, good, a catchy title. Uh, a catchy yeah. title, yeah. It's, it's a real winner. Um, it, it was actually the, the first real breakthrough um, in general relativity. So, so Einstein had, uh, had knew about this problem. It was a famous problem, actually, in, in astronomy. It had been known for about 150 years at this point, during Einstein's time, um, that the orbit of Mercury and the Sun doesn't quite match what's predicted by Newton's laws of gravity. And everything else pretty much matched, right? Everything pretty else, much everything else uh, to the accuracy with which things could be measured. Where Newton's laws worked perfectly. But, but for Mercury, there's this uh, effect called precession, that is the orbit shifts slightly uh, around the Sun. So the Mercury, when it goes around, the, it, its orbit is an ellipse, not a perfect circle. That's, that's normal for planets, and that's explained by, by Newtonian gravity. But the ellipse shifts slightly, Every time Mercury orbits, and it's a very tiny effect, um, and and uh, most of the effect is explained by Newtonian mechanics. Um, it's known that the Sun isn't quite spherical, and the other planets perturb Mercury's orbit, and so on. And so you, calculations have been done, and there was very careful calculations that, that explained almost all of this shifting effect. But there was a tiny amount left over, um, just a, a few, a, a tiny fraction of a degree every century that wasn't explained by Newtonian's Newton's laws. And, uh, and this had been known for about 150 years that there was something wrong. Um, and so when Einstein was developing the theory, of general theory of relativity, uh, sort of the first concrete prediction he worked out was a correction to the motion of Mercury's orbit. Uh, and, and it was exactly the right number that, to explain this discrepancy. And so he knew at that point I think, that, that he was on to something. And, and that was the sort of the first test that everybody could look at and say, yes, this, this theory has, you know, has something to it. And I think it's, it's this... Uh calculation he did this is what was really almost a hundred years ago today i think it was the 18th of november or so that he actually did that calculation and i find this really remarkable to think that he had spent 10 years trying to work out how to uh generalize his special theory of relativity to include gravity and he had had to learn a lot of new mathematics to do it and to try a lot of new radical ideas and he'd come up with this extremely 
uh, sophisticated mathematical structure to do that. Uh, and then out of all of that, he decided to calculate this uh, shift of the orbit of Mercury to see what would happen. And he went through this calculation, this, this difficult calculation coming out of his, his uh, huge theory. And in the end, he got the number, and the number was exactly the number that had been calculated. And it's difficult to imagine what a experience that must have been for him, what a shock. I mean, he said that he had uh, palpitations of the heart, that he couldn't sleep afterwards, that this was possibly the most, the strongest emotion he'd ever felt in his life was having calculated this. And I think the idea of going through 10 years of, of calculations, which may have all turned out to be wrong, may have all turned out to be, you know, crackpot theorizing, and to get a number, such a precise number, so accurately, must have been an incredible experience. It's, it's one of the joys of science, I think it's it's, it's fair to say, that the, when your theories all, all work out, or you make a measurement that agrees, and suddenly everything falls into place. Yes, but not many of us get <laughs> no. such a strong <laughs> confirmation yeah. of our ideas as yeah. that, yeah. But it's it's also one of the things that, that is required by a scientific theory. A scientific theory is not just someone writing down an idea and saying, I think this is what happens. To be a scientific theory, it has to explain all existing observations and then make a prediction that can be tested. And that was one of the big things that general relativity does, is it makes predictions, some of which we can test and some of which we can't. So, for example, it predicts, as other people calculated, we mentioned, the existence of, of black holes. And we've not found any directly, but we have very, very good evidence that they, they do exist, for example. But there are other predictions it makes as well, all related to the way it warps space-time. So, so Patrick, this, this warping of space-time has other effects that we should, in theory, be able to detect. So I think you're, you're referring to gravitational waves, which yeah. is a particular focus area of, of the group here at Cardiff. Uh, so if we go back to this analogy of the, the trampoline or the rubber sheet with the, with the bowling ball on it, um, that's a static situation. I've got the sun, and it warps the space around it, and that, and that causes things like the Earth to travel in these curved paths that, that orbit the sun. Uh, but now suppose I make the situation dynamic. I put in a second bowling ball. So I've got two stars or two black holes, um, and they may be orbiting each other on this on this rubber sheet. So I'm straining the analogy a little mm -hmm. bit, but you'll, you'll let me run with it. So we have these two bowling balls orbiting each other on the sheet. Now, because they're moving, the stretching of the of the trampoline is going to be changing over time as the as the bowling balls move around each other and so if you're an ant out on the edge of the trampoline you might feel uh, the ripples or vibrations in the sheet from the motion of the balls uh, as they orbit each other so that's an analogy for an effect that's seen that was predicted by Einstein in general relativity that the changes in gravitational fields as objects say orbit each other uh, will will move out from the source as the form of a wave, a, a, a distortion in space that, that moves outward like a wave. Um, they travel at the speed of light, and they're, they're called gravitational waves. So they were, I guess, the last fundamental prediction, if you will, of general relativity, something that was really fundamentally new and, and not known before, not conceived of before. Um, and they are the last one to yet be directly detected, directly tested. And so uh, studying gravitational waves and, and finding them is one of the major focuses, areas of research here at Cardiff University, actually. And, and it's it sounds easy enough. You go and find two things that are moving around each other. You wait for the waves to ripple out, and you measure those waves in space time. So, what what's hard about this, Mark? Well, the problem is that the the gravitational interaction is is really, really, really weak. And I think the, the easiest illustration of how weak gravity is is that uh, we are held down on the Earth by uh, the Earth's gravitational pull, which is is generated by this massive Earth that we stand on. Uh, but we can very easily uh, 
fight against that by we can jump up into the air, which is just the the um, you know the effect of our our own own little muscles, and we can lift a piece of paper in the air with the electric force just by uh, rubbing a comb through our hair, and so we can fight against gravity very very easily. It's a very weak force, uh, and these gravitational waves are just tiny ripples in gravity in, in the gravitational field, so they are yet weaker even ag- uh, again. And so I think in terms of this analogy that um, Patrick was talking about with a, with a rubber sheet, if you imagine uh, creating waves in the water, you can e- very easily make waves that, that, that splosh out a, a long way and are very easy to detect. On this trampoline, you, you know, if anyone who's been on a trampoline knows that this is quite a stiff object, and so you don't just send big ripples out across your trampoline. It's quite quite stiff. Well, space-time is much, much stiffer yet again, and so the, the waves that are set out, sent out from any astronomical event are are incredibly weak and that's why up till now we haven't been able to detect them so we're looking for these stretches in space time and and, and patrick what what does a stretch in space time look like if it's not a stupid question that's no, not, not a stupid question at all so when these when these waves pass through the, a common way to to imagine what they do is is imagine you had a, a say a ring of particles floating freely in space so maybe it's like some a, few, uh, a circle circular ring of marbles that you've it's magically floating. placed it's in just, a circle yeah you've got it in a space suit in your rocket ship and you've gone far away from the earth and the sun where it's just empty space and no gravitational fields and you set up a little ring of, of of marbles just freely floating there in a circle if a gravitational wave were to pass through it stretches the space so what does that mean well it's slightly counterintuitive nothing actually moves the marbles if you were if you were an ant sitting on one of the marbles you wouldn't feel any motion at all what happens is the distances between the marbles stretches or shrinks. So uh, I, I think I'm going to strain this analogy somewhere, but if, I, if my ants on my marbles were passing laser beams back and forth from each other, doing this surveying to, to, to measure the distance between the marbles, as the wave passes through, they might find that the, the marble on the far side of the ring has, has moved further away, that it, it takes longer for the light signal that I send out, being the ant on one of the marbles, to go to the far marble and come back takes a little bit longer and than it should. This laser is just measuring the distance, essentially. Just, yes, yeah. Yeah. So, so the time it takes to go out and back, you just use to measure the distance. You don't feel any motion if you're an ant on the marble, and your friend ant on the other marble doesn't feel any motion either. It just takes the light longer to go back and forth. And so that tells you the distance between the marbles has changed. That's in one direction. Typically, the pattern is... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd pattern. The, the technical term is quadrupolar. What it means is that a distance along one direction will stretch and a distance along the opposite direction will shrink. So my circle of marbles, as I measure the distances between them, will be stretched out, say, horizontally, but compressed vertically. So the circle will become an ellipse in terms of the, the distances between the marbles. Uh, that's for a wave that's, that's passing straight through the, the middle of the, uh, of the circle. So that's physically the, the effect that the, the, the gravitational wave would have. Uh, the tricky bit is to try to actually measure this, because if you, if you do the calculations, um, it turns out the amount of stretching or shrinking is, is very, very, very small. So, uh, for example, um, uh, we, we normally measure the strength of the gravitational wave by the fractional amount it will stretch or shrink at a distance. And a strong gravitational wave, say from two black holes colliding with each other in a galaxy out there in space, might stretch the ring by one part in 10 to the 22 or 10 to the 23. So, so if I put a zero point zero, 22 zeros, and then a one, that's how much I would be stretching or shrinking my, my rings by. That's a very small number. It's very hard to conceive of. So, so we tried various, various uh, uh, translations 
um, but it's hard to find one that, that deals with, with sort of human-sized numbers. So uh, one, one example is that if you took the distance between the Earth or the Sun and the nearest other star in our galaxy, Alpha Centauri, so that's about 4.3 light years. It takes like 4.3 years to go from one star to the other. That distance would stretch when a gravitational wave passes between the two stars by about 50 microns, which is about half the width of one of the hairs on your head. And so the challenge to detect that gravitational wave, that's a strong wave, mind you, would be to measure that change in distance, the half the width of a hair out of four, four point something light years. That, that's not very much at all. How can we, Mark, I mean, these are tiny distances. How can we have any hope of trying to find these here on Earth? How, how do we go about doing that? Yeah, so there has been uh, an effort to do this for uh, for many years. I mean, not quite since Einstein first proposed these things, but certainly since the um, you know, latter, century, latter parts of the 20th century. Uh, and the, the best idea that people have come up with now is to build these uh, these interferometers, which are two, which is essentially an L-shaped building, uh, where you have a uh, source of a laser beam at the at the corner of this, and you send these beams back and forth down both both arms, both of this of this building, uh, and then you record, you know, the the, the well, you set them up into some sort of interference pattern so that you don't actually see any, so that these things cancel out, the, the waves cancel out when they meet, uh, they bounce back off mirrors on the other end, and they come back and they meet, and they they cancel out, and then you know that the if the um, length of these two arms has changed in any way then or in a very small way then you will um, change this interference pattern so ordinarily uh, you see darkness ordinarily these laser beams go out and come back forward and it's designed such that you see nothing and it's right. only if it changes that you see something right and then okay even and so then the, these things that have been built they have uh, the the best detectors that we have these buildings are, are four kilometers long so the laser beam goes up on a four kilometer uh, trip it bounces off a mirror and comes back uh, and even then of course the, the change in length of this uh, arms is, is incredibly small and so the only way to detect these things is then there's they use very powerful uh, lasers they have ext- extremely well polished mirrors the whole thing operates in a vacuum uh, it's very carefully isolated so that there are no effects due to also to minimize the effects due to vibrations from outside or from temperatures uh, and so on and and these things have now reached uh, a sensitivity where we we actually know that if we got a signal from one of these sources, two neutron stars or two black holes uh, out in the universe, that we would actually be able to measure this. So we yeah we do now believe these things are sensitive enough that we can we can measure things. Uh, the the question is really just how many of those sources there are out there, and that's something that's that's very uncertain. And the, the estimates that we have for how many of these things we will see in the next few years without a texture's ranges from seeing one event every few days to potentially still not seeing any at all. And that's, at, at this stage, not due to some problem with the detectors. Well, they could be more sensitive, of course, but that's not due to some uncertainty in our, how well the detectors work. It's just due to our uncertainty of how many neutron stars and black holes there are out there crashing into each other. So in an ideal world, Patrick, we'd sit there and we'd we'd watch this detector and it would be sitting there completely black because all the laser beams are coming up exactly back exactly in sync. Uh, and we'd wait. And the mo- moment it goes bright, we know that we've seen a black hole, two black holes colliding somewhere or, or, or some such event. Um, it's not quite that simple, I'm guessing. What other things do we have to take into account? Well, yes, life isn't that easy usually. So so the, the in these detectors, the... Uh... 
the, that we that we work with, the change in the lengths of the the arms of the detectors is very very small. So it's it works out to roughly one one thousandth the radius of a proton in an atom, which is which is pretty small. Um, just for for comparison, that's something like a thousand billion times smaller than the wavelength of the laser light we use. So any slight disturbance of the system at all tends to tends to drown out any any signals. Um, and so it's a it's a real challenge to, to fight this down. So we have to worry with things like uh, the motion of the Earth, the ground shaking. Uh, we don't notice it personally in our day to day lives, but the Earth is actually vibrating all the time, and it's due to cars driving about, people walking about, the wind, um, all sorts of of of, uh, of effects. So we collectively call it seismic noise. So that's the sort of thing where you have to um, you have to isolate your detectors very carefully from the environment um, to try to, to filter out all of that background noise. Uh, also, the the uh, you need very very stable and, and very well built systems, very stable lasers. You need to have the entire system in a in a high quality vacuum where you've pumped out all of the air, so you don't have any stray air molecules getting in the way of your lasers and putting in just a little bit of a disturbance that that could be mistaken for a gravitational wave. Uh, key thing though is to have more than one of these detectors. So there are there are several of them in a in a global network around the world. There are two in the United States known as the LIGO detectors. Uh, there's one in, in Louisiana and the other in Washington State. So they're separated by several thousand kilometers. And that's really key because if you did have a, a an earthquake or ground tremor or a lightning strike or something that uh, that affected one of the detectors and gave a little, a little wobble that you might mistake for a gravitational wave, you won't see it in the other detector that's on the other side of the country. Uh, and of course, there's uh, there are several other detectors around the world. The the other one that uh, is in the late stages of construction right now is called Virgo. It's a detector in in Italy, just outside of Pisa. Lovely place to visit if you get the chance. I'll bear that in mind. Yes. And so these 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 instruments and the teams that develop them uh, work as a as a global collaboration where we share data, um, and we analyze the data from all of the instruments collectively, looking for looking for that little wobble that happens in all of the detectors at the same time and in the same way. That's uh, the elusive gravitational wave. And there are plans to go bigger, right? There are plans to do this. I mean, these detectors have got arms of this L shape that are about four kilometers long on, on, on the largest. But but ideally, you say that makes a tiny variation. If you make the arms bigger, um, then you can do it better. So what, what's the what's the end goal in or the next step? If the you... next step. Well, so you if you make the arms bigger, it's a it's easier to see the signal because the, that stretching is, is acting over a longer distance. The trick is, of course, if you want to make something even longer than four kilometers, uh, you, you've got to pay for that. And you, need to, you need vacuum systems, you need a lot of land, uh, and this gets very expensive. Eventually, there's a limit where the Earth itself isn't flat. If you make the arms too long, of course... That the, curvature the, again. That, yeah. that curvature <laughs> problem, yes. So, uh, so the, the way to go to very long arms, actually, is to go into space. Uh, vacuum is free. If it's mm -hmm. there and, uh, and and land is cheap, yeah. so to speak. So there is a uh, there are plans to put a, one of these uh, gravitational wave detectors into space. Uh, sometimes called the LISA mission, it's being proposed uh, as a as a European Space Agency mission due for launch in 2034. So, I'm not my diary. Basically around the corner, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the idea behind LISA is to put three spacecraft into orbit around the sun, and these these three spacecraft would form the the centerpiece on the ends of your arms. They would actually be in a triangular configuration, and they send laser beams back and forth to each other, the three pairs. Um, and, and these would act as, a, as your gravitational wave detector in space. Uh, the arms, the distance between the spacecraft, 
would be somewhere between 1 million and 5 million kilometers, so much, much bigger than, of course, anything we can we could do on Earth. Obviously. Bigger than the Earth, in fact. Yeah, like yeah. Quite, a bit, quite a bit bigger. The interesting thing about this is actually when you make the arms that big, you're not just making the detector more sensitive, you're changing what you're looking for. So, in, in particular, the frequency of the wave that you can detect goes down as the length of the arm goes up. They're inversely related to each other. So, for example, uh, these detectors on the Earth that are a few kilometers long, they naturally are sensitive to gravitational waves that, fl that, that oscillate at around 10 to 100 to 1,000 cycles per second. So it'd be a, a low hum a if low it was hum. audible. Yes, in fact, it, it just happens to be the audio frequency range for, for the human ear. So you could take the output of these detectors and pump them through speakers, and, and if there's a gravitational wave there, a loud one at least, you, you would actually hear it. When you make the detector arms a million kilometers long or more, you're looking at much lower frequencies, waves that have a, a, a cycle of uh, maybe once per minute, once per hour. So things that are moving much more slowly. And in the world of astronomy, that means larger things. So for example, uh, the ground-based detectors where you're looking at 100 cycles per second, that will be the end stage where two neutron stars or, or black holes collide and merge with each other. Uh, whereas once per hour waves might be produced by, say, a pair of white dwarf stars in a tight binary in our galaxy. So you're seeing a different object. It's about the same as the difference between an optical telescope, where you look with your eye and see visible light, versus, say, an X-ray telescope that's looking at X-ray emission from, and you see completely different objects when you look at the sky in those two ways. Yeah. There's a lot more coming along there's a lot more in the future that's planned but of course if, if you want to hear more about it there is an event to celebrate this uh, taking place in Cardiff so Mark tell us about this thing on the 9th of December Right so on the 9th of December we're having a, um, a series of three uh, short short talks uh, one by uh, Patrick and one by myself and uh, another by uh, Steve Fairhurst who's another uh, researcher here in Cardiff uh, and we'll be talking about the, the history of, of general relativity uh, of Einstein and, and his theory uh, and also about black holes and about gravitational waves. So, so you'll be able to hear more about that. And that's um, yeah on the 9th of December, there'll be a uh, little drinks reception beforehand. The uh, reception starts at uh, 6, and the, the talks will start at, at 7 and go till, till 8.30 or so. And it's uh, in the Julian Hodge building at uh, Cardiff University. So that should be a good event to, to celebrate with the uh, the team uh, here in Cardiff and hear more about what's going on. It's open to, to all, essentially. So uh, if you fancy coming along, then, then please come along to that and maybe we'll see you there. Uh, Mark, Patrick, thanks very much. To help build towards the LISA experiment, then a Pathfinder mission, Testing Summer Technology, is going to launch in December of this year. To find out more about that, go to the European Space Agency's website, so www.esa.int and see if you can find LISA Pathfinder. Should be a very exciting mission. Lots of technological challenges to address. But from technological challenges to looking up in the night sky, it's uh, time to look at what's in the sky this nice, dark, cold nights of December coming up. So with me again, Hugh Lang. Hello, Chris. Uh, so nice, cold nights in December. Nice and dark, yes. and dark, nice and early. <laughs> long, long cold nights, yeah. so you can get out early in the evening and do some decent observing if you require. What, what do we see if we go out in the evening? Well, at the unfortunately, moment? the planets are not being very helpful. Uh, Mercury again will be at the end of the month, twenty uh, eighth, but it should reasonably be seen uh, if long as you've got a fairly flat horizon about an hour after the sun. It's quite bright, something like magnitude minus 0.5, so it's reasonably bright to the after sunset, you should spot it. So the this only... is the western horizon? That's right, but after sunset. The only other two planets, of course, well, you have to know what you're looking for, and of course that's Uranus and Neptune. 
Uh, that leaves all the bright planets, of course, which are all morning objects. But it's not so bad at the moment, because, of course, it's dark relatively late. So you don't have to get up that early to see the, the uh, morning that, objects. That is correct. But the, the one planet I really want to bring into, it's, of course, the equation this, year, this month is Venus. Really, really stunningly bright. Uh, and what you'll see in the well, in morning twilight sky, four planets, of course, are the really bright Venus. Not quite as bright Jupiter, but still very obvious. Mars will look quite star-like, but of course it's got a really distinctly ruddy red-orange glow, so you should be able to see that. And about an hour before sunrise, Saturn will appear. But of course, that's not really <laughs> the interesting object that would be worth looking, getting up early for, to see. The, the real object is, is not the planets themselves, but we've got a comet in the sky. That's right, comet's a US-10 Catalina. It's an oort cloud object, so it's going to be a pristine comet, never been close to the sun before. So it's, that means it's coming from way, way out, from that's thousands, right. tens of thousands of times further away than the planets. That's right. Right in towards the sun. That's right. Basically, it's just past perihelion, so it's come around the other side of the sun. Of course, now it's going to rise into the... Uh, morning skies of the northern hemisphere and it's predicted to be well comets are always and really really un, undeterminable we can't be sure but it's predicted to be quite bright in fact we're hoping it's going to be a naked eye object and, and the best way to find comets because they can look like faint fuzzy blobs uh, to the untrained eye but does it pass by any planets or yes um, it's going to be fairly close on the 7th of december in fact, it's going to be about four or five moon damages away from the planet Venus. Of course, I said before, Venus is going to be really bright, so you're going to see that. Okay, yeah. and if you just look with a... You may see it with naked eye, but it's always worth having a pair of binoculars anyway. You'll certainly be able to pick it up in a pair of binoculars. And for, and for guidance, four or five moon diameters, that's probably two or three fingers held at arm's length. The width that's of those fingers is about, about the distance. So look about that far away from Venus, look around it, and you might see a faint fuzzy object, and you'll be seeing this object. Well, hopefully you will see. <laughs> you, will, you will see this faint fuzzy object, and that's something that's come into the, the inner solar system for the first time ever. That's right. And it's also on, a, on an ejection trajectory. So it's the only time we're going to see it. It's going to be ejected from our solar system. That'll be it. It'll be gone. All right. So see it while it's hot. That's right. Yeah. Now, the other thing, of course, is the big meteor shower, which is a Gemini meteor shower, which is the biggest meteor shower of the year, commonly associated with comets. Mm -hmm. But this one isn't. This mm. one's actually uh, associated with a 3200 Pathian, which is a Pelagian asteroid. So although this is, is just a hunk of rock, at some point it's passed, it's left a trail of material behind it, and the Earth is passing through that, that stream of material. That's right, which is obviously in following the orbit of the comet. But the thing about this, this particular object is that it seems to have a lot of dust within its you want to call it a tail within its orbits uh, and hopefully we should be able to see because the moon will be fairly new and setting early so basically not in the sky it's not going it? to be in the sky um, and i should actually say that the peak is predicted to be about six o'clock in the evening so you know it's a nice time to get out there and we should see in the numbers of anywhere between 120 and 160 well meteors per hour providing it's not cloudy no. <laughs> of course yeah. there's always that risk isn't there but the, the Geminis are a nice shower to watch because they're very bright and they're nice and slow. So you get That's time right. to catch them. That's right. They're unusually slow. In actual fact, something like about 35 kilometres a, a second. So the t trails tend to be relatively long. Uh, but I should also say that the best time, in the other peak is at 1800, 6 o'clock in the evening. The best time to watch them is actually when the Earth's orbit turns into the stream. And that happens after midnight. So basically the particles have a bit more energy and they will burn up even more brightly so they should be easier to see so you will see some uh, in the evening uh, um, getting on for midnight but you might see uh, more after midnight so if you can stay up late it's worth a look you'll see more and they will be brighter
And the best time to look is that night between the 13th and 14th of December. That's correct. That's a, the Geminis have a fairly broad peak, OK? So we're not absolutely sure what the peak time is, but predicted to be about 6 o'clock in the evening of the 13th of December. OK, so if you go out and look around that time uh, and around that day, a few days before and afterwards, there should be some as well. Something to look forward to on those cold winter uh, December nights. Hopefully clear December nights. Hugh, thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It was originally broadcast on Radio Cardiff as part of Pythagoras' Trousers.